from the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, we bring you a 20-year celebration of The Lord of the Rings. We smote the ruin of Fellowship of the Ring upon the mountainside, but that was not the end. We've been sent back until our task is done. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast, and we come back to you now at the turn of the tide. This forest is old. Very old. Full of memory. And anger. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is The Turn of the Tide, episode 7 on the Two Towers of The Lord of the Rings. Today, hope is kindled as the White Wizard reveals himself. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. Vroom, vroom, little hobbits. <laughs> yes, today we are going to do our long-awaited discussion of the Ents. Long-awaited by whom? Oh, let's say the Antwives. That opening is also as much Treebeard voice as you'll get from me, because I like my larynx and want to keep it. Uh, ignoring all that pipe weed I smoke. <laughs> uh, so I guess we'll start with what are the Ents? Also known as the Onodrim, which I think translates to tree host. And Ent itself means the word giant. And I think it might have some bearing from Beowulf. Is that right? Yeah. So because it means giant, um, which is actually like a corrupted version of the old German Etten, um, which we actually see elsewhere in Lord of the Rings and the Etten Moors, which is the sort of land north of Rivendell. We do actually come across Ent in uh, in Beowulf and it's kind of used as like a, a kind of broad brush term to basically just refer to like general giants, not tree based, tree oriented giants. But obviously now we all think of Ents as tree giants. Uh, but that's that's a Tolkien adaptation off of uh, Beowulf. Very cool. And with Tolkien, uh, the Ents are made shepherds of the forest, as we'll talk about as we dive deeper into the Treebeard stuff. Uh, the Ents protected various forests and wilderlands of Middle-earth. Um, and the Ents that... <laughs> sorry, my cat is just going insane in the background. I have no idea why. Um, he must really not like the Ents. Um a, co a common trait of the ants is that they often resemble the type of tree that they protected or the type of forest they're protected. Something we see a little bit more in the books, but we don't really have that kind of tree biodiversity in these films, or at least it's not discussed as much, though we do see various, various looking trees that are ants throughout um, the two towers. They are large, strong beings. And I believe uh, the trolls were actually created as a response to the Ents. Is that correct? Yeah. So like Morgoth and actually Sauron to a kind of lesser extent, like their their favorite thing was to to kind of create these inversions of the things that were good. Uh, and so the Ents, um, we'll kind of get into like the history of them specifically in a couple minutes, but like they come directly from like the, the Valar um, and so have this kind of inflection of like inherent goodness to them. And the trolls, which are meant to be this kind of antithesis or or like, dark inversion of whatever the ants are take on the kind of more like animalistic or, or human-like kind of appearance uh, <laughs> make of that what you will there maybe some light e eco-fash off of Tolkien but yeah they are they are like the <laughs> the yin yang understood and perhaps as a community broadly their most uh, obvious characteristic is the fact that they are not hasty creatures um, they are very slow and deliberate in terms of 
uh, speaking and decision making, um, something that's usually played to comedic effect, uh, specifically in uh, the films. In the books, it just makes for one really, really, really long chapter to read. <laughs> and we can't discuss the ants without discussing the who earns. And whenever I see the word who earn, I think of I was saying boo earns from The Simpsons. Yes. <laughs> Um, that is probably a meme I will have to make after this episode. But the who earns, um, am I saying that right before I keep saying I that? I genuinely have no idea because like, I feel like in Latro where you come across a lot of them, they go wh- horns. But then I've also heard it as horns or horns. But I think this is kind of another one of these things where however you say it is correct. <laughs> okay, good. So we're going to keep saying who earns just like uh, Hans Molman, or at least I will. But um, these are more trees that come alive and those are kind of seen in the two towers extended edition they are their own race by the third age essentially and they kind of exist somewhere in between being an ant and just a fully dormant tree like most trees are that we know of <laughs> the who have their own language in which they speak to each other that's distinct from entish or any of the other tongues we've discussed and they are found in Fangorn and the old forest in our main saga that we're discussing. Um, the old man Willow himself might be a Huorn uh, along those lines. Yeah. So I went um, and when I was doing a bit of like research for this, um, I, I was kind of trying to figure out if there were any fun, like popular headcanons or whatever about other places that the horns show up. Huorns <laughs> show up. <laughs> um, and, and there was this fun little debate that I, I came across, I think either on Live Journal or Tumblr. I can't remember which one. They both look the same now. Um, where uh, there's kind of a throwaway line at the start of Fellowship in the book where there's kind of this chat about the trees walking around uh, at the far edges of the Shire. Um, and and it was really cute to read this kind of debate that was happening because it was like, is it is it the sort of more benign presence of the horns or is it the Entwives? Um, are the Entwives now uh, up? You know, have they have some of them survived um, and are some of them, you know, maybe chilling out in the Shire, which is a lot more sort of vital and, and uh, kind of simple than, um, you know, the the, the, the kind of remaining uh, mannish shitholes uh, to the <laughs> south and east. And, you know, I don't think there's like, I don't think the argument for it being the Entwives is like a perfect argument, but I did think it was kind of cute that there is this like um, depth and like breadth of uh, interpretations about these fucking moving trees, which I feel like in any other fantasy series, it would just be like, yes, there's one kind of moving trees and all, all trees that move are this. And no, we've got like 50 different phrenological types of tree here, talking tree. <laughs> I, I like that. I like that there's a broad range of trees. I mean, there's always been a broad range of trees, but I guess the walking, talking kind, I guess. Uh, so we'll get into their culture and language. And they were taught to speak by the elves in a term that I don't love, but they were the elves cured the ends of their dumbness, which um, if you take away the ableism of that, I would also like to be cured of my dumbness, but More that's same. a whole other thing. Um, but uh, maybe you can give us a little overview on the language here. <laughs> yeah, so the Ents language is based off of Elderin. And if we can like be kind of rewind back to uh, like episode eight or nine of, of this podcast where we went through all of the different languages, um, one of the languages we actually didn't talk about is Elderin. And Elderin is important because <laughs> I've realized now I've just said it's important because now I have to justify why it's important when really it isn't. But here we go. Um, it's the last common language of all of the elves. So Elderin is the last sort of like, think of it as like the proto indo European of the Elvish languages. 
all of the languages that the elves speak, so whether it's like Avari or Sindarin or Quenya, um, can trace their their sort of like linguistic heritage in some way to Elderin. Um, and it itself is a is a, a sort of descendant of primitive Quendi. Um, and Quendi is the the both a language and the term used to describe the first elves who who awoke at Quivianen. And Elderin was was sort of widely spoken um in, in the early days and in, in the years of the trees and the early days of the Eldar, which is the elves and the poetic name for the elves. Um, and from there, all of the other sort of subsequent uh, elvish languages branched off or are, are descended from it in one way or another. Um, so the fact that the the Entish language is derived in, in a slightly more direct way from Elderin does like two things for us. One helps us to date uh, when the elves came into being. Now, obviously, thanks to the Silmarillion, we, we, we do actually know when they, they came into being, but it helps to sort of uh, like impart that sense of like ancientry. And it also helps us to link them into this sort of like web of natural sort of uh, like hierarchy, I guess, or like the the sort of like natural uh, like racial topography of Middle Earth of um, Arda, because it shows us how closely linked the Ents and the Elves are that they share the same kind of like mother language. Um, and, and you know, there, there's a lot that's really interesting about it. You know, the the Elvish languages um, have a an interesting habit as you sort of get further and further along. They're 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 evolution of, of becoming quicker uh, and, and kind of choppier uh, languages. And so like Sindarin, which is, it is an elvish language, but it is also a language that, that's used by men. And it's sort of the lingua franca of the, the elves uh, in Middle Earth and the Third Age. It, it, it is it is a, a much quicker sort of faster spoken uh, language. And, and you can actually hear this in the Neo-Sindarin that we hear in, in the films uh, where it, you know, it, it's a lot closer to uh, the, the kind of English that, that we speak, where we've got that kind of like choppy, bumpy, heavy, heavily staccato, highly like accented uh, uh, sort of speech pattern. If you go backwards on that timeline, um, the languages get slower and more poetic. And, and this goes, you know, part and parcel with this wider issue of like time in Tolkien's Legendarium, which is the further back you go, the longer time actually feels and the more time there is. Um, and so when you're getting back to Elderin, where you've got um, quite literally all the time in the world ahead of you, um, but also because the elves are immortal beings, and they don't have this sort of pressing deadline of death, um, you have languages that don't need to be so fast. You don't need to communicate so much information in, in so little time. Um, and Old Entish reflects that. Um, it, it's got this sort of almost cartoonishly long or, or caricature of uh, the the speed and, and intonation of of Elderin and that it's very long um, and very slow and and sort of hyper poetic uh, and really takes it like literally it is not a hasty language um, but really also focuses on like the the sort of artistry and uh, and kind of experience uh, not to sound too like you know uh, ridiculous there but like it, it's really concerned <laughs> with like the experience of every single word and and how it like the you know the mouth feel or whatever the fuck like sommeliers say and you know because of that reason they're, they're sort of not uh like there's sort of a a weird uh timeliness to it so like the elves because they're kind of stuck up wee pricks um you know never really engaged with old entish because you know i guess uh, as they kind of progressed in their own uh distinct history they got faster and faster and faster in terms of their actions and, and sort of higher paced until they hit the kind of middle second age uh accidentally obliterated all of themselves and had to <laughs> chill out for a bit 
but there's that. <laughs> um, and then, you know, you get the sort of latter day modern end tish. And that one's maybe my favorite bit of this because it starts to work in the, this sort of latter day Elvish language, well, not latter day, middle day, uh, Elvish language of Quenya. And Quenya is a really important language. And that's actually one of the ones that we covered in a previous episode because it's the Latinate language of Middle Earth in the Third Age. And this is a hobby horse that I have literally been sitting on since we did that episode, however many weeks ago, and I've been waiting to get to it. And we're finally here and I'm so hyped. When Tolkien uses Quenya in the books, you really need to pay attention um, because he's trying to say something. Um, and obviously, anytime he says something in the books, he's trying to say something, but but he's trying to say something um, and, and he's going to be doing it in a slightly more subtle way. So you really have to like tune in. And one of the things that he does is he uses the, the Quenya word for Lothorian, which is Laurel and Doranan. Um, and he has Treebeard say it, and he has Faramir say it. And these are the only two characters in the book that use that Quenya name. Now, this is significant for a couple reasons. The first is that it's not actually the name that's used in Lothlorien. The elves of Lothlorien, by and large, don't speak Quenya. They speak Sindarin. And that is like a sort of key part of their, their like sort of cultural development. So to call them Laurel and Doranan would be to like show up in DC and to speak English in DC, but then to suddenly refer to it in like fucking French or whatever, just to make a point about how cultured you are. <laughs> so, so there's that kind of thing to it. And, and it shows this sort of distance, this like academic distance from, uh, the, 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 the point of discussion. Um, but then it also shows works to show like the age and the wisdom of the characters who are using it. So, so Treebeard and, and Faramir are very alike in, in how Tolkien uses them because they're like these fucking exposition machines, you know, 10,000 words of exposition in one go. Um, but they're also meant to be these kind of creatures that are set apart, not just from like the point of view characters. So either Sam and Frodo in Faramir's case or Merry and Pippin in, in Treebeard's case, um, but they're also meant to be set apart from from their their wider culture. So Treebeard, as we'll get into, is the, the eldest of all of the Ents and, and, and Faramir is like repeatedly described as like a, a Numenor throwback rather than like a straight up Gondorian dude. And, and so to use this Quenya is to, to really kind of lean on um, actually something that Tolkien himself gets into in his essay on translating Beowulf, which is using distance, temporal distance to, to really impart a degree of characterization and, and sort of mysticism um, on characters and scenes. Um, and I am fucking delighted. We, we finally got to that. I've been sitting on that for so long and I'm like, yes, we're here. So yeah, that's it. That's, that's old dentish. Yeah, no, that's great. Just I mean, the language is kind of it's, you know, a big component of the Lord of the or the Legendarium rather, but the way that it works in history and culture just through the change of language over time. And I, as you say, there's a lot of time that the story covers. So um, I really like how that's all played in. I think when I was younger and more of outside looking in on the books, um, I think a very common criticism from casuals is, oh, Tolkien's more interested in making up languages than he is telling a story. Mm. Um, but I think part of this has been... Uh, and I knew I kind of knew this in the last couple of years, but the language, it's not the story, but there is story itself in the language, which I think is wonderful. Yeah, I, I think that's actually like a really cool point for to to bring up here, because I, I've been sort of having this fight um, both like in my head, but also in various 
parts online about like the kind of rise of anti-intellectualism and also as kind of part of the rise of anti-intellectualism, this like kind of reduction of like all these academic disciplines to just like knowing rote facts. So like if you look at like No Child Left Behind, right, like like the whole point of No Child Left Behind was to fucking obliterate education and to turn it into like a series of memorized facts and to not really teach people how to think like like critics or art critics or or historians or scientists. It was to get them to memorize a whole bunch of bullshit. And I think this kind of language stuff that Tolkien does is is really him showing how he thinks like a linguist, but also like a linguistic historian um, and kind of encouraging in some ways his readers to adopt that mindset of, you know, not just taking, you know, the the whole wide variety of languages at face value as in like, oh, okay, this is a really international world, but then asking the follow-up questions, which are, what do these languages tell us about this world and why could this be important to the story? And why is this more than just like a, an entry on Wikipedia. Um, and so it's interesting. Like, I really like hearing that, like, you've had this kind of like evolution on that. Cause that's like, I don't know. It, it like, I don't mean to sound like condescending, but that is like totally what I think Tolkien was like intending to do. And like, he's not perfect at it, but that kind of like drive to get people to, to kind of teach themselves how to like think about things or the facts that they're presented with in a different way is like, I think the big kind of Tolkien thing. Well, just like the elves cured the ends of their dumbness, I guess Tolkien <laughs> cured me of my dumbness on that. So <laughs> came back around. Uh, we'll get into the history of the ends on Middle Earth now. And uh, I'm going to obviously hand a lot of this off to Emily since she's a little more familiar. But top level summary, they were created at Orders of Yirvana in response to the dwarves. The dwarves are also known as Eule's Get. And... Um, they were, I think it's partially because the dwarves were cutting down trees. Um, I, I, maybe you should just go from here. <laughs> yeah, this is actually really funny. Um, so we kind of got a bit into the the like creation story of the dwarves in the Gimli episode, the Gimli episode, um, and how Aula, the the Vala, the Valar, he he was the sort of one that was known for smithing, and he was very close with the the the, the elves, the Noldor elves, because he was a big smith, I guess. He wanted to create a sort of group of beings that could kind of be his own to be his like uh, effectively to be his children um, and so in secret he created the dwarves uh, and the seven forefathers of the dwarves and god uh Eru Vitar was like yo what the fuck dude you can't do that that's me only um and so he puts all of the seven dwarves to sleep in mount gundabad um until such point that the elves awake and then the dwarves can awake after that uh, yavana who's aula's wife um and she's also the the uh, avala um, she gets a little bit concerned um, because she sees the environmental sort of side effects of small-scale smithing uh, through Aula's works um, and starts to panic that that having uh, an entire race of, of creatures that that exist almost primarily to smith and to create things and to, to sort of craft things out of the natural world around them will have a necessarily sort of like depletionary impact on uh, on on the world. And she is the Vala of, of nature um, and she is like eminently concerned with like how pretty the, the world is and sort of the preservation of, of, of nature and it's like and sort of like most untainted form. So she goes to Eru and and says, you know, I'm I'm shit scared about what's gonna happen when these dwarves awake. Um and you know the the trees and the the forests and the rivers, I care about them as if they are my own children. And you know, how would you contend with the fact that you know these things are these beings are coming in the future that are going to like cut down your kids. Um, and Aru says, yeah, fair fucks, good point. Uh, you can go ahead and create something to um not 
halt, entirely halt the, the work of the dwarves, but to sort of protect and, and, and act as an intermediary in, in some places. And so the Ents are created. And this is really kind of an interesting little tidbit, um, because as we talked about in the Gimli Sode, um, there's this necessary point to be made about like the anti-Semitism of the the like dwarf creation story. And obviously Tolkien uh, throughout his career kind of goes back and forth on like anti-Semitism to philo-Semitism to anti-Semitism to philo-Semitism and never quite gets it right. Um, and I think this is kind of one of the instances where he isn't really getting it right because he's positioning dwarves who are the stand-in for, for Jewish people against nature um, and then has to have this like creation of the, the like stewards of nature. And there are a lot of sort of like ancient um, anti-Semitic tropes, literary tropes that this plays into. Thankfully, by the time he gets around to uh, the Lord of the Rings and, and certainly to 1944-45 when he's writing the Treebeard chapters, um, he's backed off a bit from doing that like sort of inherent contest between the dwarves and, and the Ents. And actually, I don't think it shows up at all in uh, Treebeard's chapter, or if it does, it's sort of only obliquely. Um, and it's more a reference about all of the men that are, or all of the, the various species that are being jackasses about nature rather than just the dwarves. Um, but I do think it is kind of like worth talking about that here, just because I think um, people will tend to, to see this whole kind of dichotomy that's set up as like a, a, a like a necessarily innocent one. And I don't think that's true. Um, so yes, on that downer, <laughs> I think that's the history there. <laughs> so you're saying if the trees wanted to do hate crimes against Gimli when he was in Fangorn, they'd be totally <laughs> right to do it? Is that is that the conclusion we're getting here? <laughs> yes, but only because he's Scottish. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. <laughs> Scots deserve it. <laughs> Little of the Ents' early history is really known. We've mentioned this fun fact about eight times now on the podcast, but Eriador was once a large wilderland stretching from, you know, where Fangorn is now all the way to the old forest adjacent to the Shire. And most of that was destroyed during the Second Age or the age of colonialism in Middle Earth, where a bunch of men and elves were doing shit and take, turning down trees. Which gets us to the Entwives. <laughs> oh, the Entwives. <laughs> the Entwives disappeared long ago. So there were, you know, female Ents uh, known as the Entwives. I guess they're just born married. Yeah, I, I'm not really sure where that comes from, <laughs> but, you know, sure. Um, and, you know, they, you know, shared the lands with the Ents, the male Ents. Um, but at some point, they supposedly, or it is believed they went east to the lands which are now known as the Brown Lands, presumably before they were brown. Um, it is said that the Antwives had a greater disposition to plant and expand the forest than the actual male ants did. Um, and then obviously the issue, you know, getting into some biological essentialism here, is without Antwives, there can be no Entings. Um, and Entings, in this case, means baby ants, even though I initially interpreted Entings meaning Ents fucking. There have been no Entings, meaning we have not fucked for an age, is how I interpreted it the first time I read those words from Treebeard. Um, anything you want to say about Ents fucking here before we move on? <laughs> um, you know what? No, I think I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fair enough, fair enough. 
after the after the War of the Ring, um, which we don't really catch up with them in the films, but they were essentially given non Kurinir, which is essentially Isengard for our purposes. Basically, we saw them kind of move into the valley uh, at the beginning of Return of the King, the film. Um, and basically, they kind of just staked out, planted roots, very literally, I would say, I guess, in this case. <laughs> and I think our last, like, soft count of total ants remaining around the time of the War of the Ring is about 50 or so. Um, I don't know if there's anything that disputes that or if there's anything else to get into with that. Um, yes. So, sorry, I'm just trying to think about how I'm going to phrase this. Yeah, so there's kind of like a, a an inevitable grief element to the Ents, um, and this is true for both the Ents and the Elves, uh, and, and, you know, there's kind of this sorrow waiting for them. Um, and whereas the Elf sorrow is kind of based on the fact that at the end of days, you know, they are tethered to the sort of fate of the Earth, and they know that at the end of days, they're going to have to go into this war against Morgoth, and they know that it's going to be like a terrible, awful thing. Um, and they are sort of waiting, uh, waiting for inevitability for that. And, and that's where like a lot of the sorrow of the Eldar comes from. The Ents, by contrast, have this sort of sorrow of almost mortality. So they're incredibly long-lived, as long-lived in some cases or longer-lived than, than the Elves. Um, but they are not, as far as we are aware, mortal um, or immortal, rather. So the fact that their numbers are dwindling and, you know, Treebeard starts to get at this says that at some point there is a, there is an end point for them. Um, and Treebeard sort of offers this like semi-optimistic kind of a referendum, I guess, on their fate, which is when he's like, oh, well, you know, at the end of all things, you know, we will be reunited with the Entwives. And, and there's sort of something like semi, well, not semi-religious, but like quite, quite religious in that, in that like this is also how the afterlife functions for a lot of Christians, which is like death is obviously a sad thing. Um, but the afterlife and the, the promise of an afterlife means that there is going to be joy after this sort of, or joy wrapped up in this sadness of death. Um, and in the afterlife in heaven, uh, if you get to heaven, uh, you will be reunited with all of the people that you love and you will be closer to God. And and that will sort of bring you like a level of like spiritual fulfillment that that is impossible to sort of reach in, in the mortal, in the temporal realm. Um, Treebeard's basically saying the same thing. Like, you know, uh, our numbers are fucked. Uh, we are in terminal decline. Uh, a terminal decline necessarily heading towards zero and and there's not really any sort of future for us where we can like revitalize our numbers but at least in the future when we do hit that that zero and all of us do die um we will end up back with the you know our, our wives essentially and and there will be this sort of like greater love at the end of it but it's the waiting game between now and then um and so like you know nice that they get to have this like kind of good digs at at nan Kernier, at isengard um and you know there are some things that they can have to sort of like ease their passage but they are effectively this kind of omen harbinger of the death that is to come <laughs> which is cheerful I'm kind of like retconning the end of Return of the King, and I was just hoping uh, Treebeard showed up at the Grey Havens. Is like, where's my boat? <laughs> like, can I fit on this? And can he tr try to sail uh, west with uh, Gandalf and Galadriel and the rest? And Caliborn is like sharpening his axe and is like, where's your boat, buddy? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, if we chop you into a couple little pieces, you know, we can definitely fit you on there. <laughs> or we can just have a uh, Frodo like use uh, Treebeard as like driftwood and float his way slowly <laughs> to the. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get now into uh, the publication or meta history of the Ants and Tolkien's work. Uh, do you need me to set up this clip or do you want to talk about it? Let's just jump into it. Yeah. 
Yumeido as a line from a little play called Macbeth. Uh, you know, kind of an edgy, offbeat sort of thing. You probably don't know it, but you know, if you do, you're really cool. Um, so this is a play that Tolkien specifically has like a, a kind of disproportionate amount of beef with. Uh, like the character of Eowyn is written like directly in response to Macbeth and and his sort of like lack of satisfaction with Lady Macbeth's character arc, which is fair. Um, but the Ents are also uh, written in response to that line. Um, so so in in uh, Macbeth, the, the three witches foretell that Macbeth will not be vanquished uh, until Burnham Wood, which is a forest here in Scotland, like 20 miles up the road from me, until Burnham Road comes to Dunsinane Hill. Uh, and I now like feel like I need to do my local knowledge thing here, where like in the play, it's always said is Dunsinane, but it's actually Dunsinane Hill, nevertheless. And and in the play, it was, it's Duncan's men, I think, or Macduff's, one of these fuckers, uh, you know, his men dress themselves up as trees. Uh, and so they come from Burnham Wood to meet Macbeth on the field of battle at Dunsinane and Justice Trees. And that's the fulfillment of the prophecy. That's Burnham Wood, great Burnham Wood, got, come to Dunsinane. Uh, and Tolkien was like, wait, what the fuck? That's such a sheep out. Make the trees actually walk. Um, and so that's what he does. He literally writes in characters um, into his book that will have the actual literal impact of Great Burnham Wood come to Dunsinane. Uh, and that is genuinely all that the the Ents are, were originally intended to do was basically his many fuck you to Shakespeare. Like, I could do Shakespeare better. And, and I'm going to like go out on a limb here and say I actually think he does succeed in doing Shakespeare better because that's a much like cooler way of handling that issue. <laughs> So I am like we talked a lot about Shakespeare, especially in our Northman episode. I, I'm I'm a fan of the guy. I'm a big fan. <laughs> um, but Macbeth has not been one of my favorites yeah. over the years, or at least I've just preferred other stories a little bit more. Um, a couple recent like um, theatrical adaptations I've seen have kind of warmed me up a little bit. Uh, both the recent tragedy of Macbeth with Denzel, but also I watched uh, the Kurosawa version, uh, Throne of Blood, mm. which absolutely bangs. Um, but I, I, this is one of the few things when I was 18 years old in a theater and the trees started marching on Isengard, I'm like, oh shit, this is Macbeth. This is the coolest thing I've seen oh in my, my life. Like it was, uh, the Leo pointing at, um, the TV meme. And I remember talking about this, like immediately afterwards with my friends and they were like, eh, that's kind of a stretch. I don't think it has anything to do with Macbeth. I'm like, no, it has. Okay. Well, if it doesn't, then it at least is a very cool parallel. So it actually, you know, 20 some years later, like knowing that it is very deliberate actually makes me very, very happy and self-assured that I was right this whole time, which is the most important part. Yeah, I was going to say, you're a much smarter 18-year-old than I was because I literally, until I read the letter that Tolkien wrote to Auden, uh, W.H. Auden, where he literally says, this is a response to Macbeth, I had not clocked that at all. <laughs> so, good, good work. <laughs> yeah, I was bound for something good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> so, I guess, like... You know, we've kind of brushed up on this a little bit. Uh, no pun intention on brush, I guess. But, um, you know, the ants kind of really are a stand-in for nature, are part of the themes that are, like, tangent to all the natural themes running through Tolkien's work and these movies. Um, and it's juxtaposed against the Saruman storyline, which heavily focuses on the rise of industry and the war machine, um, at least in the Middle-earth sense. And the reaction by the trees of Fangorn is essentially nature rising to meet and oppose Saruman. Yeah, so I, I I'm always kind of like interested that that 
this is when Tolkien chooses to bring in these like eh, like incredibly aggressive themes of of nature versus industry. And because if you think about when he's writing, which is 1944-1945, it's the first time in in history that number one the the industrialization is sort of at the peak that it's at, you know, we've suddenly got cars and planes and, you know, the the Fordism as a, a sort of way of organizing workplaces and and factories and you can pump out more shit, more mass consumer goods at a higher rate at lower prices than ever before it is like the the zenith of the industrial revolution um but the like you know beyond the sort of obvious dark side to that there's the 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 far bleaker dark side to that which is that you know Tolkien is is living through the industrialization of mass murder um and and you know again because I feel like I'm only saying like really grim shit on on this episode right now um but the the Holocaust would not have been possible to the extent that it was without the 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 levers of industrialization and you know it is no mistake that you know the the Nazis were you know backing up Volkswagens uh to run gas chambers um and that that the way that uh concentration camps were laid out is inspired directly by the way that like um incredibly efficient according to like the Fordist model of thinking factory floors are laid out because it is truly death and destruction on a on an industrial scale um and so Tolkien is writing in light of this and so there's this like incredibly horrifying element to industrialization and and for someone like Tolkien who is so heavily inspired by the romantic movement um, and the romantic movement is a, is an intellectual and creative movement that is and and always has been very skeptical of industrialization and it has sort of you know sung the praises of nature untouched at a, you know a, a sort of like critical mass point, right? And and so for Tolkien to to have been inspired by romanticism and to bring these sort of romantic themes of, of nature versus industry into to his writing is really not surprising. It's interesting, but not surprising given the context. What I think is really interesting, however, is that by the time you get to the 1990s, industrialization is a lot more let's say nuanced of an issue um because throughout the 1960s 70s and 80s and then the early 1990s you get this this economic process called deindustrialization um and i have to be careful because i did like <laughs> i do study deindustrialization so i don't i don't want to go too far into it but like the the elevator pitch for deindustrialization is essentially shutting down all of the factories and and sort of sites of heavy industry within the first world and outsourcing them to the imperial subaltern so to third world countries effectively and one of the sort of crucial cultural memories of deindustrialization certainly in in uh in the UK and the the sort of rust belt um of the United States is strike um is strikes and, and protest against deindustrialization and, and the sort of wiping out of you know hundreds of thousands if not millions of jobs for working class people and so there is this sort of semi revisionism on industry because the way that the the sort of scaling back of industry has taken place in the imperial core takes the form of depriving people of their livelihoods um and so you know the the, the effects of deindustrialization are like widened 
you know, far ranging, you know, here where I live in Scotland, you can directly trace, uh, it, you know, even in the, the, the city that I live in, in Dundee, um, you can trace when the last major, one of the last major factories that the Timex shut um, and compare it to the spike in drug abuse and drug deaths. And and it's almost, you know, a perfect one-to-one or you get the, the sort of rise of poverty, the increase of violence, the rapid decline of uh, life expectancy, particularly in men, the rise of disability, workplace disability, uh, it's just the sort of general amelioration of, of everybody. So industry in this sort of latter half of the 20th century isn't so closely associated with the Holocaust. And, and, and I know this sounds kind of sick and it's it's kind of an awful like juxtaposition to, to draw, but people think of industry as, you know, and, and the sort of height of the industrial age as the time in which they had two pennies to rub together, jobs, the people around them weren't dying. They didn't feel like they were sort of impotent in their own lives. Um, and, and this sort of critique of industry is a bit more difficult to make. Um, and so it is really interesting to me that the the Peter Jackson films really go whole hog on this because there is so much more like pressure to be a little bit more like nuanced in how you handle industry. And and it is kind of fun. I maybe don't fully agree with it, but, but really interesting that this is the one theme they choose to really go gung ho on and be like, this is this is the argument that we are making in these films. No, that that's all really great. And obviously in the 90s, it's it's a very different uh, kind of backdrop for those kind of themes. So, you know, tying into these nature themes, there's a reason why we get Mary's All That Is Green and Good in This World little speech happens in Fangorn specifically. And it's also, I'm going to have some really terrible examples here, but one thing I like about Fangorn is that it represents the setting fighting back. Mm. It is something we've seen in stuff from Beauty and the Beast with, you know, the Beast Castle and all the little things fighting against Gaston and, you know, the village folk. Mm -hmm. But also we've seen it with Hogwarts Castle, um, you know, the Room of Requirement and then all the stuff in the Deathly Hallows. But like, I, it's just always something that kind of tickles me when like the world starts fighting back as as well as the characters. Um, I know there are better examples. I'm sorry that I just settled on the two most basic ones, obviously. <laughs> and because of the natural themes, that also means there's some overlap with the elves and the hobbits. Um, the elves more historically with like the cultivating of the natural world and the hobbits maybe more specifically to the story and this film specifically, which tries to tie the hobbits to being a little more grounded and in love with nature than maybe they actually are. Because as we discussed in our book only episode, they did, you know, engage in their own kind of tree burning, <laughs> uh, which to which I say we need to teach the controversy and the Hobbit's history with burning trees. <laughs> yes. Good Hobbit revisionism. Uh, and lastly, we'll uh, kind of just mention that there are, you know, I think in large part because of this, but maybe not directly, is that there are other sentient trees in fiction that are kind of very similar to what we see between either the Ents or the Huorns. Um, they're all over the RPG genre, uh, from Magic the Gathering, Dungeons and Dragons, World of Warcraft, um, often referred to as tree folks or just straight up trees in those. Um, and I hear C.S. Lewis also uh, has some trees in his, but that's Emily's purview, so I'll hand it over to her. Yeah, uh, classic C.S. Lewis manages to do a dumber, shittier version of uh, what Tolkien already did. Um, in The Last Battle, which is the last of the Narnia books, obviously, uh, the king of uh, Narnia, Tyrion, not to be confused with all the other Tyrions in fantasy history there, is kind of like uh, catalyzed the spur to action uh, in, in the war uh, after hearing about the felling of talking trees. Um, and like the talking trees in 
uh, Narnia don't tend to get a huge amount of play. They tend to be like quite backgroundy characters, but they're also kind of occasionally called dryads, which is certainly more in line with like the talking tree trope, I guess, character archetype and history, like the Greek, uh, Greek dryads, that sort of thing. Uh, but yeah, I think they are a shittier version of what Tolkien does. So <laughs> there's that one. <laughs> and maybe some more popular ones from like the more modern times. <laughs> of course, uh, everyone knows Vin Diesel in the Guardians of the Galaxy movie. I am Groot. I'm sure there is an ant joke buried somewhere in those movies because you know how those Marvel movies love to mug at the camera. So, but um, I can't think of any right now. Um, the Deku tree in the Legend of Zelda, specifically yeah. the Ocarina of Time, but it does uh, prop up in other uh, Zelda games. And then anyone who's been playing Elden Ring recently uh, will come across <laughs> the Erd Tree avatars. I heard Emily's kind of uh, mischievous laugh at that. Um, but there are uh, various tree. Um, they're called tree avatars in uh, the game, and they are big dudes who will fuck you up. Uh, I recommend fighting them on a horse when possible. Um, but they are also, I would say, some version of what, you know, kind of Tolkien laid down with the Ents. God, my heart just fucking dropped hearing you say that because I haven't even encountered these guys yet. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to get my ass kicked by some trees in the future. Great. And it's wonderful. <laughs> Pick up today with the three hunters, now driven into the madness of Fangorn Forest. Gimli gets an amuse-bouche upon entry, a tasty little treat of orc blood that confirms they are on the right trail. Aragorn is still doing his big boss tracking shtick, but he himself is dumbfounded by the strange tracks left by Treebeard. And then, they hear it. Gimli! I admire Gimli's quick reflexes, but wielding an axe in a forest full of pissed off trees is not a good look. <laughs> Do better, Gimli, son of Glowin. But between the twisted roots and gnarled branches, Legolas spies something with his elf eyes. The white wizard approaches. Fearing the voice of Saruman, Aragorn instructs his colleagues to shoot first, ask questions later. Taking a page from the American police, I guess, well, unless they're asked to protect some kids. The three turn and attack as a blinding light assaults from the rear. The being, obscured in white, easily deflects Gimli and Legolas's projectiles and sets Aragorn's blade aflame in his hand. For the moment, it looks as if Saruman has ensnared our heroes. And then, the being speaks, sounding vaguely Sarumanish. You are tracking the footsteps of two young hobbits. Where are they? They passed this way the day before yesterday. They met someone they did not expect. Does that comfort you? Not in the mood for riddles, Aragorn demands the assailant reveal himself, and the assailant does, stepping out from behind the white light to reveal an old queer stoner. <laughs> it's Gandalf. His death and rebirth are an obvious homage or wink at perhaps the greatest story ever told. 
Michael Jordan's retirement from the Bulls in 1993, <laughs> only to return in 1995 to lead the Bulls to three more championships. I guess that makes the Seattle Supersonics, Saruman's Urukai, and the Orcs of Mordor, the Stockton Malone, Utah Jazz. And with John Stockton being a MAGA nut and Carl Malone a pedophile, I feel like this analogy works really well. NBA aside, our remaining fellowship is utterly dumbfounded. Legolas kneels, and Gimli bows his head as Gandalf shines above them. Aragorn needs answers, though. You fell. We saw you fall. We mourn for you. Gandalf explains his trial by ice and fire, which I'll drop here because it is our current podcast introduction. From the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, I fought him in the Balrog of Morgoth. Until at last I threw down my enemy and smote his ruin upon the mountainside. After defeating the Balrog, Gandalf recounts how life slipped away from him, there alone atop the white peaks of the Misty Mountains. Each moment was a lifetime, a never-ending infinity of death properly conveyed by the camera zooming into Gandalf's eye to reveal a 2002-style screensaver of deep space. (laughs) But that was not the end. The fires of life were renewed in the wizard, and he was sent back until his task is done. Aragorn is on board with all this, and his mentioning the name Gandalf stirs something in the new white wizard. That was what they used to call me. Gandalf the Grey. That was my name. Gandalf. I am Gandalf the White. And I come back to you now, at the turn of the tide. Gandalf gets straight to the point. The Act 1 plot threads of the three hunters, Merry and Pippin, and the mysterious white wizard have reached a resolution. Now it's time to pivot to Act 2, which begins in the Rohan. War has come to the Horse Lords, and they must ride with haste for Edoras. Gandalf orders an Uber XL, you know, the fancy black car service. Well, adjusting for myth and technology, that means an all-white horse named Shadowfax. Hey, if the Nazgul are going to be high-maintenance and require black horses, it's only fair Gandalf gets to match their drip in all-white. Shadowfax sets up another great sicko, Legolas line. That is one of the Meras, unless my eyes are cheated by some spell. The three hunters, now led by the White Rider, set out for Edoras and the Golden Halls of Maduseld. But we are not quite done with this recap yet. Merry and Pippin's safety has driven this entire plot thread, so let's make sure they're doing okay. Turns out, they are. Instead of being in Treebeard's clutches, they find themselves upon his shoulders as he gives them the walking tour of Fangorn. Treebeard catches the audience up on what happened off-screen. He promised Gandalf to keep them safe, and then gives them a much briefer history of the Ents than we gave at the beginning of this podcast. This might be the first time ever someone was less brief than Treebeard. The return of Gandalf is a big deal, and Gandalf himself is kind of a big deal in the Legendarium. (laughs) 
And we all know Emily has thoughts about him. <laughs> that said, we're going to skip a lot of the meaty character stuff for next time when we plan to do one of our character episodes on the Grey Pilgrim, or I guess the White Rider now. We'll circle back to some of the tricks they pull in these scenes later in the film craft portion, as well as his rebirth sequence. Gandalf's baptism by fire and water was covered so wonderfully by M back in our initial Two Towers episode, number 23, You Shall Not Pass. Speaking of that episode, that's also where you'll hear us describe the Battle of the Peak, where Gandalf fought the Balrog up the endless stairs in Moria, smoting his enemy's ruin upon the mountainside, and all that jazz. We can move on to discuss Fangorn Forest first as a setting. Fangorn gets its name from Fangorn, that is, Treebeard. Treebeard's name in Sindarin is Fangorn, Fang for beard, and Orn for tree. So the forest is named after the Ent, kind of like a self-titled record, and it's also known as the Entwood by the people of Rohan. I think for copyright reasons, we need to refer to it as the forest formerly known as Fangorn. Uh, we need to make a cool uh, prince symbol for that one as well. <laughs> This will be the fifth straight episode and the second time in this episode that we mentioned much of Eriador was wooded in the first and second ages, stretching from the modern day Shire to where Fangorn lays today. Fangorn lies just east of the southernmost range of the Misty Mountains and east of the Nankornir, the Valley of Isengard and Saruman. To its south and east are Rohan, specifically the Westament and the Wold, respectively. Out of it flows two main rivers, the Limlight and Entwash, or Onodlo. Both waters end up merging with the Great River, the Limelight before the Falls of Raros, and the Entwash after through a series of tributaries. Yeah, I feel like I have to like always bring up uh, some ham-fisted fucking Dante stuff. Um, it's actually not Dante stuff. I have to stop doing this because it's not Dante. It's just Christianity. But it, the the kind of two rivers in a wood uh, motif, I guess, is, is really important. There, it shows up a lot uh, uh, throughout like Christian literature. I am most familiar with Dante, obviously. So so in uh, Purgatorio, uh, there's Lethe and Uno, uh, and I, I've talked about that before uh, in. Uh, one of our last episodes of Fellowship, but but the sort of like, here we go. This is gonna this is gonna be the most like <laughs> bullshit jargony way I've ever gonna say something incredibly stupid. There's like this kind of like duality element going with like the the two rivers in the wood and the one sort of being the the more da- the more dangerous element, and that is the the limelight. Um, and that one has a, a, a sort of more like spooky element to it, and then this sort of more kind of purifying and and, and simpler uh, one, and that's the the end wash, and and that dumps out into the. the um, the the various like spider like tributaries, but that's a smaller sort of slower moving, um, kind of better tracked one. Um, and there's that kind of two sides of a forest and two sides of a river, and of course like two sides of like the Christian spirit, the intangible versus the tangible, the known, the sort of simpler, uh, and that's the two rivers there. <laughs> Bangor in itself has its own specific sites of interest and attractions, but few that really matter for this film. Treebeard has a little shelf in the hills, a house and a hall, such as it would be for an ant, and big veils and glades if there is a mooting afoot and the ants need to chat. That'll come later, of course. <laughs> Fangorn is the last known living location of both ants and huorns, which I'm probably going to call trees from this point. Treebeard war- warns Merry and Pippin of the trees, who have grown wild and dangerous these days, in large part due to the orcs of Isengard treating tearing them down en masse recently, but I imagine there's millenniums of rage for the trees that have fallen over all over Middle-earth. 
Treebeard also complains about staffing levels and upper management. <laughs> Apparently, there aren't many ants around to keep the working class trees in line. <laughs> Oh boy, um, yeah, um, and now I'm now I'm like God. We gotta kill Treebeard. That's fine. That's okay. Um, his time will come. Uh, yeah. So um, we we've kind of done this. This is kind of well trodden ground for us, but I just feel like uh, flagging it again here. Um, so Tolkien does a whole bunch of stuff with woods and morality, and of course geography. And so if you imagine like the coordinate plate of Middle Earth with the North being the simpler parts of uh, of of the Earth of the coordinate plane. The South being the more sophisticated, East being the less moral, the more immoral, uh, and the West being the more moral. Um, uh, Fangord sort of sits right dead center, um, and so it has this kind of bridging of the simple and the sophisticated through like the tangle of the woods. Woods being it, them, themselves sort of a simpler thing because they are natural and because they are of the earth, but the, the sort of tangled, unnavigable elements of them being the more sophisticated part. And then you've got the sort of morality balance where like you know there is this this degree to which um, you know the the elves or the elves uh, the ents are not neutral, um, but they are certainly not a part of the uh, sort of um, crusader-like uh, moral crusade, I guess, that that is set out by, you know, the destruction of the ring by Aragorn, by the the, the sort of faint that uh, Gondor and Rohan pull, uh, both at the Pelennor and then later at uh, Moranin. And they're sort of a more passive part of the moral goodness. And so they are like this kind of center point. But there's also something um, to be said about the relationship between woods and romanticism and uh, and morality. For Tolkien in particular, who spends a lot of time in his essay on fairy stories, um, writing about how children's stories need not be stories that are aggressively sort of like prosaic and they don't have to be the sea spot run sort of thing uh that that you you got sort of before the lord of the rings or before the hobbit more accurately um, and then certainly came back into fashion afterwards um they can be things that deal with a level a certain degree of symbolism a certain degree of like uh a, a, a sort of fluidity of meaning and there's nothing to to be lost by that um, and when tolkien does that 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 sort of chat in on various stories He's actually picking up on a long history, like that starts with like, oh, fuck, I'm going to say it's Longfellow, and it's not Longfellow, but all, but certainly Samuel Coleridge, um, who are romantic poets, um, who who use the linkage between woods and sort of childhood freedom to talk about morals. Um, and what they say is, is essentially like, you know, we think of the woods as a place that we got to, to play in as children. And there is a sort of element of like childish or childlike fantasy to them, but that childlike fantasy or, or sort of, uh, imagination or freedom, um, does not inherently equate to sort of like a, a pathetic simplicity. Um, and actually there's a lot of good in having this sort of like childlike fantasy, um, tethered to the woods. And, and there's a lot of moral goodness that comes out of that sort of innocence and purity of childhood. And so having Eriador as a whole forested in the way that it is, is a way of sort of linking up the kind of youthfulness of the area, you know, like the Brelanders are always talked about in terms of like their lack of sophistication, but they're also quite often likened to children. Um, the hobbits, of course, who are in the far northwest of uh, of Eriador and the Shire, they are also very much likened to children, and, and their sort of moral goodness comes in large part from their simplicity. Um, and and that kind of romantic theme of the woods being both a simple place because it evokes this sort of childhood freedom, um, but also a morally good place, um, is is like definitely of a piece with the sort of romantic writers who come 
before. Um, but then Tolkien adds this sort of, um, well, you know, he, he's not the first to do this, this. I shouldn't, I shouldn't like give him undue credit here, but, but he plays around with this sort of additional part of like, but the woods are also shit scary. And um, like, you know, Dante gets lost in a woods, uh, and, and ends up in hell. <laughs> That's not like a great day out at the park. Um, you know, the old man Willow and, and the, the old forest is, is something that is quite scary and unnerving. Um, and there is this sort of moral ambiguity involved in this and, and loss of direction. And so he's kind of playing on like two different expectations here. And there's one that's kind of the like higher brow, I guess, literary association and one that's sort of the, the sort of more innate, I guess, kind of cultural expectation. Um, and, and you really get it all kind of in this one character of Treebeard um, in a way that I, I think uh, you don't really get with a lot of the other themes that Tolkien plays with. That's a good transition because Fangorn isn't just a place, it's a people. <laughs> well, it's a person. Or ant. The ant, in fact. Treebeard. <laughs> uh, he's Middle Earth's living natural history. The oldest guy around, older than all the wizards and elves we've met so far. Quick question for you. Do we know when Treebeard was born? The year of the trees? That feel that feels right. <laughs> uh, just by name alone, but Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we don't know exactly when he was born. I think the year of the trees is pretty much a, a good as good of a, a good of a an assumption as anybody can really make on that. Um we know he's the oldest still living ant. Um, what is actually interesting, though, is he goes out of his way to mention that he is not the oldest tree in the forest. Um, so even though he's the oldest ant, there are trees that that sort of predate him. Um, and also, again, as part of this, he was probably born in the year of the trees or created in the year of the trees. Um, it means he predates the stars and the sun and the moon. So, uh, tree beard, old as balls. <laughs> Does Treebeard subsist on photosynthesis? Because if he existed prior to the creation of the stars, oh, that's... Dying. <laughs> <laughs> why, why would you bring me alive just to die? <laughs> that's, oh, yeah, peak Lord of the Rings there. <laughs> Treebeard was around, obviously, when the elves started to teach the trees to speak. Um, and he used to wander the lands with his wife. <laughs> I'm not doing the Borat voice, even though I put that in the notes. Um, but following the loss of the Entwives, he mostly stuck to the boundaries of Fangorn. And we'll save a little bit more of the meaty Entwive chat for the Token Token book section. In the more recent history, uh, you know, Treebeard has become friends with Saruman after the wizards came in the Third Age around the year 1000. And uh, Saruman was very interested in the workings of Fangorn. He asked a lot of questions about its boundaries. I, I feel like I sometimes get Treebeard and Theoden mixed up with their relationship to <laughs> Saruman. Uh, I mean, not that they look alike, but <laughs> um, but like I know um, somewhere in the books it says like, well, Saruman was always the one doing the asking and not like he was always receiving information from who he talked to, but he wasn't as forthcoming. Was that Treebeard? Was that Theoden? Maybe both? I'm pretty sure that's Treebeard. Yeah. Uh, oh, fuck. Yeah, I think it's Treebeard. <laughs> so well, we'll just go with Treebeard for now. Yeah, why not? <laughs> And uh, as uh, Emily mentioned uh, in our discussion, um, the ants are not exactly immortal, but what their actual lifespan is or like how long they live is kind of up in the air. I think you got something more to add, though. Yeah, uh, sorry, I've just had my the light bulb above my brain has just gone off. Um, I forgot to mention. So, so uh, Saruman uh, is a uh, like a kind of servant, like a servant angel to the Vala Aula. Um, 
which is significant because we've already chatted about him before. Um, and the fact that he has this sort of interesting, occasionally good, but sort of generally skeptical relationship with uh, Treebeard, who is obviously a, a sort of near equivalent servant or creation of Aula's wife, Yavanna, uh, is uh, like an interesting little bit of interplay there. Like, uh, you know, Saruman comes from this sort of world of smithing uh, and and has this this kind of like uh, industrial crafting background and the fact that he kind of hightails it to hanging out with the this kind of anti-crafting creature uh, is is fun. It's just a fun little little bit there. <laughs> we can talk a little bit more about um, how they actually adapted Treebeard for this film. Um, cause getting him alive for the big screen is one of those kind of, it's not quite the Gollum stuff, but it is one of those things where that's kind of like a high bar to clear. And if it doesn't look that great, it could really bring the film crashing down. The physical tree beard is a combination of CGI and animatronics, a little old school, a little new school, which is a good summation of the entire trilogy's visual language. Uh, Treebeard standing alone or long shots of him, uh, especially in the you know last march of the ants, are usually computer generated. But when they have close-ups of Merry and Pippin, that is a physical rig that Boyd and Monahan are riding on in a blue screen room with people in blue suits moving Treebeard's head and limbs with <laughs> poles, which is really fun. I recommend trying to track down some of the uh, videos of that on YouTube or the DVD commentaries. Uh, this accounts for when Treebeard is holding both the hobbits in his hands and later when they ride on his shoulders as they kind of start to do now. And I believe uh, if you listen to the Two Towers commentary, you can hear Billy Boyd complaining about how Treebeard is squeezing his balls when they're in the <laughs> ring. So that's always great. <laughs> Treebeard is voiced by John Reese davies who is also the actor uh, playing Gimli. To create his distinctive voice, production built various wooden boxes, uh, very much an emphasis on wood for Treebeard. The boxes were not uniform. They'd have different interior structures and rafters so that no two boxes were the same. Mm. Then they'd play a recording of John Reese Davis's line through the various boxes until they got the sound they desired. Holy shit. The pitch would also be shifted and reverb added as well. Um, and then when actually filming these Treebeard scenes, uh, John Reese davies would be on set to deliver his lines through a microphone for the hobbits to act against. Um, this isn't the final version of the voice performance, but it allowed them to speak in a natural cadence and not have to ADR a bunch of shit after the fact. Yeah, um, I you've already recommended it, the behind the scenes stuff, but these scenes are like so unbelievably funny to watch in the behind the scenes reel. Um, I like I think I was actually crying laughing when we were watching them. And it's also like, as you've just pointed out there with the the voice work, the, the sound effect work that they've done, really kind of a technical marvel in a lot of ways, like maybe not the most cutting edge of scientific development or whatever the fuck, but it is really like fascinating level of creativity to to get to watch. Um, unfold on on screen and i guess that kind of that level of like wow this is really cool and they've done this really well kind of blinded me to the fact that like treebeard's adaptation is apparently very controversial with fans of the book um, and apparently there's a, a sort of huge um kind of stink after uh the two towers came out when like book fans kind of went online onto uh well, uh, internet forums as were the trend back then, uh, and, you know, pitched a bitch cause, cause they didn't like it. Um, and we're gonna have to save some of this for the Entmoot, uh, because it's, it's a really fascinating bit of sort of 
like recent political history. The the I'm just going to tease this with. There's a very direct connection to the Iraq War uh, and why people were complaining about Treebeard, um, and not something I I considered uh, until I was doing the, the the sort of research for this episode. But before we get to the Iraq War stuff, and um, there was a lot of sort of concern that that Treebeard had been taken from a uh, a, a kind of humble but noble kind of lofty character and turned into something a little bit too much like a joke. I don't really buy this critique at all. I get it. I get why people would say it, but I don't really agree. I think it's kind of a not helpful um, critique. And I also don't think Treebeard is like a joke in, in these scenes at all. I think he's got some funny moments, but it's like situational levity, not like character levity. Nevertheless, it, it really did kind of piss a lot of people off. Um, and um, I'll see if I can get some screenshots up on my Twitter, but and it's really interesting reading the the sort of posts from people in the direct aftermath of this film's release because they are really fucked off about Treebeard. Um, and lots of people, lots of like fans of the Lord of the Rings before the movies came out um, via the books um, tend to list Treebeard as like the number one sort of betrayal of the films, either before or just after uh, Faramir's character, which is like... Holy shit, that's really throwing the gauntlet down there. So I always think that's kind of interesting, fun, little grim tidbit, I guess. Yeah, that, that, that's just fascinating to me just because I never really um, caught whiff of it that anyways. Because um, even though I've been, you know, a filthy movie only guy for much of my life, I at least knew that people were upset about Faramir or Eowyn or Denethor. Like those kind of like criticisms or adaptation choices, those criticisms did bubble up, you know, into my purview. But this is honestly the first time I heard of Treebeard not going over well. Yeah. Um, Because I had seen, I is it's a, the Rankin Bass or yeah. I can't remember which of the uh, two animated movies has the two towers bit in it, but the trees and that or the ants and that are just like these big round <laughs> logs <laughs> and Treebeard walks around with uh, just holding them in his hands kind of like at the um, beginning when uh, he finds Merry and Pippin in this movie but it's just like a big wooden circle with a big smiley face on it it's basically <laughs> the Kool-Aid man but make him a tree <laughs> so I always thought that was goofy and actually seeing this version of Treebeard is like oh okay no this 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 passes credulity or no, I think that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. This like I can, I can buy in with the physical uh, adaptation as well as the character portrayal of this. Um, I didn't really have any problem, but you know, teach yeah. their own. I'll, I'll allow that. <laughs> Enough about trees. Now our white rider needs a white ride. And in that <laughs> we are introduced to Shadowfax, the Lord of all horses and one of the Maras. The Maras is, well, the word Mara or Maras is Old English for horse, and they themselves are wild horses out of the north, uh, descended from Thelaroth, who was tamed by Eor, Eor the first king of Rohan. Uh, Thelaroth threw off Eor's father when he was a young boy and demanded Thelaroth be his mount in penance for killing his father. Um, and since then, generally, the Maras would be the mounts of the kings of Rohan. In these movies, Shadowfax is basically just Gandalf's buddy. Of course he is. Gandalf is one of our connections to nature. He can make moths carry his messages. Eagles swoop out of the night sky to save him. So him just being buddy-buddy with the best horse seemed of a piece with that. 
I am doing the fastest Google of all time uh, because I have have just had a massive brain fart. Um, I was going to make a fucking white Bronco joke. I've been trying through this whole podcast to make a white Bronco joke. And then I was like, make the joke and then immediately forgot whether or not a Bronco is a horse. And obviously it is. Um, but having had that horrific brain fart midway through this, I no, can no longer make the joke. So I'm going to ask all of our listeners to be incredibly generous and pretend that I just made an incredibly funny joke about white Broncos and Gandalf being OJ Simpson. And then we can carry on with this episode. <laughs> As it turns out, um, all that stuff about just Gandalf and Shadowfax being best buddies from old time's sake isn't actually true. Uh, Gandalf kind of absconded with Shadowfax after his flight from Orthanc back in Fellowship of the Ring, much to Theoden's chagrin. Gandalf took Shadowfax to try and track down Aragorn and the Hobbits back in Fellowship when they were trying to make their way to Rivendell. And uh, Shadowfax would depart from Gandalf once uh, Gandalf himself arrived at Rivendell uh, when, you know, we were having the many meetings between all these peoples. Yeah, um, I... I like I'm I I want everybody to know that I hear myself when I'm saying what I'm about to say here. But um, I think it does kind of suck that they take away the fact that um, Gandalf stole uh, Theoden's ride, um, because I think it makes Gandalf seem a lot more morally like unambiguous than he really is. And I know like oh moral grayness is such like a boring little thing to complain about, but I do think like. It, when Theoden tells Gandalf to take a horse and fuck off, he literally says that. He's like, I will give you any horse in my stable if you get the fuck away from me, old man. And Gandalf is like, any horse, is it? And then literally takes the king's horse. And it is a level of like feeling himself superior and also a sort of pointed fuck you to Theoden that imparts like a huge amount of like political intrigue on the story and like sort of like character depth on, on Gandalf rather than him just being a heavy with like a horse pal or essentially just like a glorified horse girl. Um, and then I think there's also kind of this element of like it gives. <sighs> so in the movies, it's made out like the, the mirrors are magical. And they're not magical, actually. Um, the the Miras are just really, really well-bred horses. And it is, like, therefore really, really important that the that the Rohirrim sort of have claim to this really, really well-bred sort of line of horses because it adds to their sort of skill. And so rather than just being these kind of, like, bumblefuck farmers who kind of go to and fro and haven't, like, figured out how to use uh, stone masonry, even though everybody else around them has, like they do have something that they are incredibly good at. Um, and, and the fact that they are incredibly good at makes them like not just valuable, um, allies, but also gives them a sort of edge, um, you know, puts them head and shoulders above other types of military, uh, militaries in, in middle earth and, and, and really sort of makes them seem like they are advanced, at least in one sense, uh, vis-a-vis -vis the, the sort of other cultures of middle earth. And, and instead by just having it be like, like shadow facts, it's just some fucking magic horse. Um, it takes away that sort of level of skill and practice and sort of value to the Rohirrim. And I genuinely cannot believe I'm arguing in favor of being nice to the Rohirrim because I think that's, uh, fuck those guys. <laughs> but uh, yes, uh, as part of my book contrarianism, I do feel the need to point that out. Very fair, very fair. Once Gandalf returned as a white guy, Shadowfax basically <laughs> becomes his regular steed and we'll see him upon it through the rest of the films. Um, and Shadowfax himself takes no saddle and would bear no other rider. So he's basically Gandalf's uh, only through the rest of his life. Ride or die. Or the rest of Gandalf's life. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know when Shadowfax died. I don't know if we have those stats. I also don't know. So we'll say he died right after Gandalf got on the boat. <laughs> Sounds great. Old Yeller style. 
Get, right before they get on the boat, there's a scene they didn't show where Ganhoff takes him out back and turns him into glue. He's already white. It works. It's, uh, I, I think on that note, we are going to transition to our <laughs> um, film craft portion of this episode. God, a Shadow Facts glue joke. I really didn't think I was going to sink to that, but uh, so we did. So we did. <laughs> When the three hunters first encounter the white wizard, they are bathed in a blinding white light, obscuring the wizard from view, aside from his outline. On his little elevated mound, it obviously has a very religious, messianic look to it, a shining beacon on a hill. It feels like pure energy, luminous instead of crude matter. Nice. Perhaps this is closer to Gandalf's true form, not the corporeal one made to interact with dwarves and elves and men. To get the voice effects, both Christopher Lee and Ian McKellen recorded the lines you hear. You follow in the footstep of two young hobbits, etc. and so on. And then the sound team blended the two together, letting Lee dominate the earlier lines, but then softening near the end and skewing more towards McKellen's voice. The final, does that comfort you, is purely Ian McKellen, and thus Gandalf winning out, the white wizard as he was meant to be. This is going to be the most like early mid 2000s thing I'm ever going to say, but this is like effectively just like a shit old man's rap battle. Uh, and congrats to Gandalf <laughs> for getting the last line. <laughs> Gandalf dra- drops his shroud of light, but as Gimli and Legolas kneel down, the white light shining on them doesn't lessen. Gandalf fully revealed is also an assault of white in a good way. His hair and beard are white, his white robes and white staff accentuating the deep blue of his eyes. This works especially well against the stylized backdrop of Fangorn with its dark greens and browns. Fangorn is twisted and gnarly with a heavy canopy in the set, with very little sunlight breaking through it. At the same time, Gandalf, this magic source of light, is being hidden within it, his light not breaking outside the forest yet. Just like news of Gandalf being alive hasn't escaped the forest. So is him leaving Fangorn and announcing himself the wizard version of a debutante ball? Who's to say? (laughs) I know that's not the case, but remember, I had to make up my own conclusions based on an outright refusal to read the books 20 years ago. I assumed Gandalf kind of woke up atop the Misty Mountains, wandered around like an invalid for a while, not sure what to do, but the coming of Merry and Pippin and eventually Aragorn helped remind him of his mission and away we go. But what actually happened is him doing stuff and going to Lothlorien and another eagle, maybe? Yep, pretty much. Um, yeah, so Gandalf fights Balrog for two days and two nights at the top of the uh, Endless Stair, Calabidiel, uh, and gets wiped uh, at the end. He does kill the Balrog, uh, and his spirit tries to depart Middle-earth. Um, but when he goes, it's not clear if he goes like directly to the Hals of Mandos, which is sort of like the judgment room or holding center purgatory of uh, Middle-earth or, or of Arda, really, um, or if he's kind of caught in the interim but it's basically decided that because he is the only one of the five Istari, the five wizards, to have remained totally true to his mission on Middle-earth, um, he's not going to die. He's going to be sent back, and and he's going to be sent back with a promotion. And so his spirit is sent back into his body, um, and his body is collected by the uh, eagle Gwaihir. Uh, and Gwaihir floats him down the uh, mountainside to uh, Lothlorien, and at Lothlorien he is clothed and cared for by Galadriel, and Galadriel 
Ariel presents him with a new staff, uh, a new staff made by her people, um, and then basically sends him onwards. And you know the, the quest is not done. Um, and all of this happens in, in a span of uh, just a couple days. Um, and and Gandalf really has to kind of uh, turn around very quickly, figure out what the fuck's going on, and then try and get ahead of everybody now that they've all scattered. Moving on to Gandalf's death and rebirth sequence. Just want to flag how this film does Gandalf quote-unquote dying after fighting the Balrog as there aren't too many sequins like it in these films. On the White Mountain Snow, the camera zooms in on a bloodied Gandalf the Grey, hair a tangle, and the camera zooms straight into his eye. This transitions into a rotating uh, light speed shot of the <laughs> endless vacuum of space. This is perhaps what Gandalf saw, or just another vibe shot for us, the audience, to communicate the infinite of space and time. Gandalf's conscious uh, bounced around here before returning to his corporeal self. And when the camera zooms through the hyperspeed tunnel, it emerges back out of Gandalf's eye, who is now buck nude, healed of all his injuries, his beard and hair now white to match the snow. Yeah, so I think they do one of these shots in one of the Harry Potters. I think, oh, bugger. I've just watched them all recently as well, so I should remember this. I think it's seven or eight, one of them. Wherever, not Gandalf, fuck, uh, Dumbledore is still alive and he has like a weird thing and then he shows up and they do the weird zoom and then he's like lying in white on the thing and it's exactly that. Um, I have no like intellectual point to this besides that like the Harry Potter films and uh, books spend a lot of time cribbing from Lord of the Rings. So whatever, that's that uh, hatchet uh, brought out there. So I think this whole kind of sequence is really interesting for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is it's kind of the only glance we get at in these films of the sort of immaterial world of Lord of the Rings, which is to say it's kind of like a look at the spiritual realm, not through like the kind of Wraith view or the Ring view, but like this kind of like objective reality of a realm that exists outside of like the the soil and the rivers and the trees. And it's interesting then that, that we see this, unlike in the books where we're only told about it. And I, I think it kind of is like a very, very kind of aggressively modern take on it. And, and I want to be clear, I'm not actually criticizing. I think this is a totally fun and good sequence. But I think it, it's interesting where these divergences crop up because in the book, we really only hear about it um, and, and Gandalf experiences, but it's this experience that's sort of too great um, and, and, and too sort of it, not just intangible, but, but uh, to borrow again from the romantic movement, too sublime uh, to, to fully verbalize. Um, and in the films where everything is made to be just that bit more tangible, we actually see it um, instead of hearing about it. And I think there's this kind of like, you know, not to be like, oh, reject uh, modernity, embrace tradition or whatever. But there is this kind of turn towards the aggressively tangible, I would say mostly over the last 150 or so years, where we've kind of moved away from accepting things on the basis of like kind of spiritual or mystical reasons and needing to have hard evidence of something existing through through like sight. And I want to be clear that this, I like, I'm putting this 150 year cap on it because I don't think it's a product of the the industrial revolution, um, or not the industrial revolution, the scientific revolution. Um, I don't think it's a product of, or explicitly a product of the Enlightenment. I think it's very much a product of the rise of visual media, um, and and the rise of cinema and and TV and and it, their sort of, um, uh, proliferation in our culture, um, and that need to see things to accept that they are real, um, as opposed to the sort of like older old world sort of mm -hmm. accepting things because we are told that they are true um, and and either not needing to or not wanting to or not feeling obligated to see it to trust that it's true uh, whatever the sort of 
benefits and and uh, disadvantages of that are maybe i think that's probably like a a, a, a kind of a truism about uh, i guess culture generally uh, over the the sort of time frame between the publication of writing and publication of the books and the release of the films no, I, th- I think that's really great. And I think that's almost tangent to something we're going to talk about when we get to the Black Gate, where we talk about how a lot of films um, broadly are more interested in showing causality, maybe than, you know, some of the books they're based on. So there has to be a clear A to B to C. And I feel that's like another manifestation of tangibility um, in these kind of adaptations that maybe were- weren't as prevalent before or in their source text or whatnot. Yeah. But I won't say this is a knock against the movies, but one thing that I kind of lament is that in Return of the King during the Siege of Minas Tirith, um, there is a moment where Pippin and Gandalf talk about death and what it's like to be mm. dead. Um, and Gandalf talks about, you know, and then you see it, white shores, sands, beach, whatever. Um, and I almost wish that there was kind of a visual commonality between what we see here versus what we see then, even though I know Gandalf isn't like, dying per se here or what what's happening to him isn't like what everyone experiences but like i almost wish that there was like a visual kind of commonality to it and maybe that's me getting into that whole tangibility and cause and effect thing where you know would have registered better with me if what gandalf described to pippin was actually what he experienced when he turned from gandalf the gray to gandalf the white i i hadn't clocked this this is so funny that that you you bring that up um Man, Gandalf is a dick. Uh, what Gandalf is describing there is Valinor. He, he's describing the shores of Valinor, which Pippin can't go to. So he's <laughs> describing death to Pippin, or like the the sort of afterlife of Middle Earth, and Pippin won't get that. What dick move? <laughs> oh my god! Describe like you're totally right. Describe the fucking space mountain shit that Gandalf goes through because that's what Pippin's gonna get. Oh my god! What an asshole. <laughs> Yeah, there's this great party after we all die. Oh, you're not invited. But by the way, it's great. You'll just take my word on that. (sighs) Also, from here on out, the White Rider becomes its own musical leitmotif, mostly featured when Gandalf leads the hunters to Edoras, which we dropped to open up our recap, as well as when he leaves Edoras on his quest to find Eomer. It's a waltz time, heavy string orchestra that is pretty much just a big crescendo piece. Yeah, um, so I'm sorry to anybody who actually knows anything about music who has to hear me uh, really badly bastardize uh, a lot of music theory here. Um, but like the the kind of point of a lot of musical scores or musical writing and composing in general um, is to have sort of questions and answers uh, in the music. And so the, the music will ask a question and then um, you get that sort of emotional resolution within the music, within the score by, by answering that question. Um, and when you don't answer that question, um, you either are, are not answering that question because you're not a very skilled composer or you're doing it because you're trying to make a point about something. Um, and there is not really an answer um, as such to the white rider leitmotif through, like, as you say, this kind of ongoing crescendo element. And that is because it is this degree of like, um, it is it is hinting musically at this unfinished job of Gandalf's. Um, and so we hear it getting louder and louder and louder and more and more and more powerful and building up more and more and more. And we don't get that kind of final closure to it because Howard Shore is using this as his way of going, and there's still more work to do, and there's still more work to do. And you think we've reached the peak, but no, there's still more, there's still more, there's still more. Keep holding off, keep holding off. And it's not until we get to the Grey Havens that we finally start to get a bit of that sort of musical resolution for, for Gandalf's uh, leitmotif. 
Yeah, no, that's incredibly well observed. Um, because even like the portion of music that I think of as the White Rider theme is all of like 20 seconds, maybe. Um, and it's literally the music that plays um, as they ride off away from Fangorn. But we do get like the White Rider as like a musical phrase is worked into a lot of the stuff in Return of the King, specifically when he heads to Gondor and all the kind of Gondor uh, activity that Gandalf gets up to because he's obviously kind of steering the hand there, um, so to speak. So um, while we don't get like another full like White Rider piece later, you will hear it like embedded in a lot of the Siege of Minas Tirith stuff that we'll get into in the next film. Moving into our Tolkien Tolkien book section, I first want to flag a little uh, exchange between Gimli and Legolas about Gimli having, you know, his axe out, which is played in the film, you know, pretty comedically. Um, But uh, the lines in the text are, you know, kind of Gimli saying, I have done it no harm. That is just as well, said Legolas. But nonetheless, it has suffered harm. And that's speaking to just the general chopping down (laughs) of the trees um, that has, you know, kind of made the trees all pissed off. Yeah. And I think there's also like this important ongoing sort of discussion in these books about the, you know, um, intention versus effect. Um, and I think Tolkien comes down quite hard on the, the, it doesn't really matter what your intention is. It matters what the effect is. And I was trying and failing to read a, a bit of an argument, like a kind of theological argument about about Tolkien's position on sort of like morals and this very question of intention versus effect. And without doing us all a disservice by me trying to explain it and fucking it up quite badly, and um, Tolkien tends to come very aggressively down on the side of um, it doesn't matter why you are doing what you're doing. What matters is is the sort of outcome of it. And and you have to sort of be aware that whatever you are doing is going to have consequences. And, and those consequences, you will both need to suffer, but they will also be a very direct impact of outcome of the things that you are doing. And it doesn't matter that you, you may have the best intentions in the world. What you need is the best outcome. Um, and, and that's obviously like a big kind of question in moral philosophy or whatever. And this two little two line bit of dialogue here is, is really kind of Tolkien setting that out in a, in a really clear way. And it's, it's funny because this article that I was trying and failing to read was kind of going through this thing where it was like, God, the, who is it? The New York times reporter who was like, I spent years on that story and he just tweeted it out. And it was basically this, uh, academic going through that with Tolkien and being like, yep, this is pretty much everything that I've been trying to argue morally. And he just did it in two lines. So time to kill myself really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the book section here also has one of my favorite Gandalf quotes where he says, go where you must go and hope, uh, which is specifically important to me, uh, because when I quit my job, uh, last year, that quote is how I ended my goodbye email. Um, I unfortunately did not know that my podcast co-host absolutely hates (laughs) Gandalf. Uh, so I thought it was a cute line. No, I'm kidding. I, I totally fine with Emily's takes. It just, it's really fun. It's just really funny in retrospect. It's like, oh, this is a very meaningful Gandalf quote to me. And it's how I close the chapter on an important part of my life. And Emily's like, you know, he sucks, right? Oh, yeah. I stand by that, but it is a good line, actually. I do, I do support it, but also fuck that guy. <laughs> uh, moving on to another quote I like. Um, this one is from Treebeard. And he says, 
Real names tell you the story of the things they belong to in my language. In Old Entish, as you might say, it is a lovely language, but it takes a very long time to say anything in it because we do not say anything in it unless it is worth taking a long time to say and listen to. Um, obviously, part of that makes it into the films themselves uh, later during the Entmoot, but I really like the idea of real names tell you the story of things. It, it re- I think there's like a Nietzsche quote that's similar to that, where it's like, if you can tell me the name of something or the history of something, I will take the history every time. And then this is kind of like an omega, like kind of combining those two concepts that the name is the history. Nice. Um, so it's just something that I just really enjoy about Entish culture, even though it takes them a long time to get that out. Yeah. Um, it, it's also kind of another entry into like Tolkien's battle against um, modern modernity, I guess. Um, like one of the kind of key elements of modernity is is the sort of standardization of time and then the kind of like relative speeding up of time. So like everybody feels like they have fewer hours in the day and everybody has to cram more into every single minute and second of the day as part of modernity. Um, and Tolkien was like keenly aware of that and always kind of trying to like spiritually, literally, whatever, politically pump the brakes on it. Uh, and you, you, you get that there where he's sort of upholding this kind of taking your time to think everything out and taking your time to say everything as the sort of ideal way of handling uh, the world as it comes to you. And in the actual Treebeard chapter, I know I've complained about it quite a bit because it's very long with long paragraphs, but in a way, it is almost that form-following function thing that Treebeard's long, deliberate, unhasty speeches are blocked as such in the text. They are giant paragraphs. It's one of the longest chapters in all of The Lord of the Rings. So um, while the story does kind of slow down for me in the Treebeard chapter, it like is appropriate that it slows down during the Treebeard chapter as opposed mm. to say like the Helm's Deep chapter or something. <laughs> so, um, but you know, in a way it's a big, because the, the, basically all the tree stuff minus the actual um, like denouement with Saruman that we see in Return of the King, all of that is basically in one chapter of the book. Um, so there's a lot of exposition coming out with ants and ant wives, um, and then the whole ant moot and what the ants are going to do, and Mary and Pippin staying at the ant hotel or whatever it is. Like all that stuff all occurs in one chapter as opposed to piecing it out and kind of revisiting it intermittent between all the Aragorn and Gandalf stuff. It's like, no, we just got one giant ass Treebeard chapter, <laughs> and like the actual paragraphs are very much in the manner that Treebeard would talk in delivering. So I guess that's, you know, that's good. I guess it's just sometimes a little bit much to get through. Yeah, um, it's actually interesting because uh, like like you are right, there's this sort of form following function element to it. But I also think there's like kind of like a, a more micro level kind of stylistic thing where like treebeard sentences are longer and sort of with bigger words and, and they are meant to make the reader slow down. And, and if you compare that to the other sort of guardian uh, scholar warrior in the woods, which is Faramir's chapter where he's got fucking 10,000 words, it's actually like 9,800 words of exposition he delivers in a single chapter. His sentences, while certainly packed full of, of information, um, are a lot sort of snappier. And, you know, when stylistically his dialogue slows down, it, it is for a reason. It is because he is lamenting Boromir, it is because he is lamenting the fall of Numenor or the sort of the downfall of, of Gondor. And, and and Tolkien wants people to ruminate on, on what he's doing, but everywhere else he's much snappier. And so you compare that to Treebeard and there is this element of like, once again, time and mortality and, and relationship to mortality are very much playing in and how you handle 
like you can say the same amount of shit by the numbers, but the way that you are going to deliver that amount of shit that you're spewing is going to look and be done differently um, based on your relationship to to time and death. And with that, let's do some Entwise chat, which we kind of <laughs> talked about a little bit up top, but we can do a little bit more here. We're not going to cancel J.R.R. Tolkien for reinforcing <laughs> the gender binary in end culture and also naming the woman ends for their role in the patriarchal system, a.k.a. <laughs> Entwives. Um, we'll, we'll save that for a different uh, discussion. And we kind of talked about how they wandered a little more, um, and they were the ones that kind of went out to the Brownlands and probably died or something bad really happened <laughs> to them out there. Though uh, when uh, Treebeard is talking to Marion Pippin, he does ask the hobbits to keep an eye out for Antwives near the Shire. Um, given the Who Warrens and Old Man Willow, there's a chance that, um, you know, maybe, maybe some of them have found their way west instead of east. I hate to do this. No, I don't. I love doing this shit. Um, I have to do some token <laughs> apologia. Um, so Entwives uh, aligns to how we name women in English. Uh, a woman comes from wife man, wife of man. Mm. Uh, so Tolkien was just taking that schema and uh, <laughs> entifying it. Um, and this is actually, I'm now going to turn this and say, this is not to say that Tolkien was right to do it. It's to say that English is a deeply fucked language and maybe we need some <laughs> new vocabulary in there. Yeah. that that I, Also wife man. <laughs> <laughs> wife man. Yeah. yeah, I would like to be a wife man someday. <laughs> so I, I get it. I get it. <laughs> Treebeard's wife, however, is not one of the unnamed women Tolkien. Her name is Fimbrithil, which I didn't really have anything on. Is there anything to the entomology or anything about her specifically you want to get out? Yeah, so it's, a, it's like a Sindarin name. It's kind of one of the, like, it is glossed. So we do have a couple different definitions for it. It does change. So at, like, various points, it's, like, slim branch, slimmed beech, like, beech tree, and slimmed branch. So she's skinny is what we got out of that one. So there you go. <laughs> it's a very important <laughs> aspect to know about. It. Uh, there is a wife in uh, the Lord of the Rings Shadows of Mortar series of games, specifically the Shadows of War game. Uh, her name is Karnan, but I honestly don't remember shit about it right now. I do, like I've said, I will play the game again for the podcast. And once I do, I will come back with more detail. Nice. Where in the world is Karnan San Diego? <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, cool. So along with that card and before I get to, uh, I'm writing out in my notebook, like a fucking dweeb, uh, what I think, uh, Karnan might be the, like what the, uh, derivation of Karnan might be in Sindarin, but that just matters to nobody at all. Um, uh, so the Enwives, uh, we got up, uh, into this up top, uh, and how they are this sort of kind of, um, like point of focus for the, the sort of, um, loss of uh, and and sort of uh, sorrow and grief that that is inherent to 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 mortality um and the films play this up through arwen but but the books don't really use arwen as much um they can only kind of like literally explicitly say isn't it sad that she's going to die uh, through the antwives they can be a, a little the books can be a little bit more like oblique about it um and and it is this thing where like treebeard is very much sad and very much in mourning for his wife uh, and 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 the life that they shared together but he also has this kind of optimism going where he's like 
look, at the end of all days, we are going to be reunited together. Um, and, you know, as I said before, like, that's a really, really Christian thing. The reason why it's interesting to me, though, is because the Lord of the Rings, as uh, Tolkien got kind of <laughs> nailed to the cross on, I guess, uh, is like definitely a Catholic book, uh, is, is a book that is like very much um, informed by his Catholicism. And it is a book, um, importantly, where God is real and like, like God, God absolutely exists in this universe that, that Tolkien has written. Um, but religion isn't. And um, there is no sort of religion um, equivalent to uh, it within within Lord of the Rings. There aren't churches. There aren't sort of like ritualized practices. Um, God is real, but Christianity, Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, yada, 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 they don't exist. And there is not that, that sort of like distinction. Um, and then you also have this weird thing where heaven is real, but it's literally part of the earth. And I think that the point I'm about to make here might be slightly bullshitty um, and maybe not as good as it, as it could be. And I'm probably going to have to come back to this and revise this opinion later. But I think this is kind of reflective in a lot of ways of how, like one, Tolkien's trying hard to not do like any blasphemy um, and he's trying not to do uh, sort of allegory. So he has to make certain concessions and certain changes. That's fine. Um, but he's also incredibly concerned with the everyday and the tangible and how that is linked to or married to the sort of fantastical and the spiritual. And so you've got this sort of long-term grief that Treebeard talks about and this this grief that is of the everyday and it is of the present. You know, Treebeard wakes up, I guess, gets up in the morning and feels that grief and that, that grief is a part of him um, in his everyday life. And it is it is almost tangible. But that this sort of future optimism and joy and reunion with the things that he loves is is intangible and it's in the future and it's it's incumbent on uh, the afterlife being what the afterlife um what he expects the afterlife to be. Um, and so there's that element of the sort of fantastical and the spiritual and, and the sort of faith that things will get better, which is, you know, obviously a, a kind of crucial element of, of Christianity uh, writ large, of Catholicism, certainly writ large. Um, and and so you've got that kind of, uncom not uncomfortable, but but slightly tense kind of interplay between these two things, between like the the sort of like ruthlessly prosaic way in which religion and, and spirituality and, and the like tropes of religion, gods and God and angels and, and you know, the fight, this, the, this sort of fight between um, good and evil, uh, you know, that's quite prosaic in, in The Lord of the Rings. But then there's also this sort of like spiritual yearning that isn't prosaic in, uh, the, in The Lord of the Rings. And that, that I think is kind of the, the parts of Catholicism, his Catholicism that Tolkien can't quite like sublimate into the, the sort of like ruthlessly tangible. Um, and, and again, to kind of do all of this through this semi-tree-like ancient figure, I think, um, in a lot of ways is, is part of this wider connection between like, you know, the, the, the sort of church of the forest, the church of the woods, this like need to have a connection to, uh, to the woods, not because they're beautiful. Well, yes, because they're beautiful, but not because they're beautiful because they're aesthetically beautiful, but because they're beautiful because they're like part of God's creation. And, and that is what imbibes them with beauty, not sort of any like shallow visceral thing. Anyways, uh, it, that is a that is a thesis in in construction, and I think I'm probably going to come back to that and totally revert it later on after I have some more time to think about it. But yes, that's that is where I'm at right now with these fucking ant wives. It's a bummer that Emily just had a really thoughtful uh, little dialogue there. Um, I really should have let this episode end on that, but sadly, we're going to just get really stupid yeah. in this episode. <laughs> Because we, there is an Ent and Ent Wife duet song in the Tree Beer chapter, which we are going to perform for you now. Uh, perform used very loosely. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Emily, would you like to be the ant or the ant wife? Um, I will take the ant wife. <laughs> okay. In the least weird so. way imaginable. <laughs> <laughs> so here we go. Hopefully you guys are oh, have been warmed up to our vocal singing abilities <laughs> from previous episodes. But <clears throat> I actually also haven't practiced this, which I kind of did with the Tom Bombadil one. So yeah. we'll see how this one goes. Fuck. <laughs> When the spring unfolds the beech and leaf and sap is in the bow, when light is on the wildwood stream and wind is on the brow, when stride is long and breath is deep and keen the mountain air, come back to me, come back to me and say my land is fair. When spring is come to garth and field and corn is in the blade, when blossom like a shining snow is on the orchard laid, when sun and shower upon the earth with fragrance fill the air, I'll linger here and will not come, because my land is fair. When summer lies upon the world, and in a noon of gold, beneath the roof of sleeping leaves the dreams of trees unfold, when woodland halls are green and cool, and wind is in the west, come back to me, come back to me, and say my land is best. When summer warms the hanging fruit, and burns the berry brown, when straw is gold and ear is white, and harvest come to town, when honey spills and apple swells, the wind be in the west. I'll linger here beneath the sun, because my land is best. When winter comes, the winter wild that hill and wood shall slay. When trees shall fall and starless night devour the sunless day. When wind is in the deadly east, then in the bitter rain. I'll look for thee and call to thee, I'll come to thee again. When winter comes and singing ends, when darkness falls at last. When broken is the barren bough, and light and labor past, I'll look for thee and wait for thee until we meet again. Together we will take the road beneath the bitter rain. Together we, we will, will take, take the, the road. <laughs> the fuck? <laughs> hey, let's let just start. Let, okay. okay. One, two, three. Together we Together will take, we will the, take the road that leads into the west. west. And, and far away, far away we'll, we'll find, find a land, land where both where our both hearts are it's <laughs> uh, perfect. No notes. Oh, great. We're headed for Broadway. Oh, yeah. Next time we will either practice that or like do it as a round so we don't have to be in time with each other. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> and that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is my brother, my captain, my podcast at gmail.com and my bro, my cat, my pod on Twitter. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash manuclear bomb, which manuclear bomb. Hey, that's me. I've been Manu. You can find me covering Metal Gear Solid over at Podcast Sans Frontiers. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter being an Ed Wife guy. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.
<laughs> Gendry is just going psycho in the room. <laughs> <laughs>